Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. And in this episode of our podcast, we are continuing on in our sermon series called Confessions of a Pastor, where I've been reflecting on some of the things that I've learned over my 13 years in ministry. And in this week's confession, I'm going to talk about something that every pastor has experienced, and that is the urge to walk away from ministry. I'm going to talk about why it is that we've had that feeling, and I'm going to let you know that the line from that old R.E song is true, that everybody hurts sometimes, and that includes your pastor. So let's get right into this episode's sermon. So over the last few weeks, I've spent my time with you reflecting on my 13 years in ministry. And along the way, I've confessed to you that I have felt unworthy of my calling into the ministry. And I've confessed to you that I'm not perfect and that I will let you down. And I've confessed how much every one of you who is a part of this church matters to me, whether you've met with us in person or only worshiped with us online. Well, today we're wrapping up this series of sermons, so I have one last confession for you. But before we get to this week's confession of a pastor, I have a little joke that I want to tell you. Now, this particular joke, it's an old joke that ministers have occasionally liked to utter behind closed doors when we have been well out of earshot of any of our church members. Out of our cynicism and frustration, we sometimes like to say, that ministry would be easy if it weren't for the people. Now, obviously, based on what I told you just last week when I talked about how much each one of you matters to me, this joke doesn't represent the way that I feel about ministry. But it has been said that every good joke contains at least a kernel of truth, and there is some truth in this joke as well. And if you don't want to believe me, you can just listen to this story that Israel Galindo, a seminary professor and leadership expert, shares. Here's how he tells it. I arrived at my office at the seminary campus after three days of travel and conferences. Reluctantly, I looked at the phone, knowing that I'd have to call through a number of messages in my voicemail before I'd be able to begin clearing the growing pile of mail that was sitting on my desk. The third message caught my attention immediately. It was a cryptic message from Alan, a former student of mine, asking that I call him back as soon as I was able to. Now, the tone of his voice suggested that what he had to share was bad news. And given what I knew of his church church situation, I could guess at what that bad news must be. This was Alan's first church right out of seminary. And typical of so many first church opportunities for young, inexperienced pastors, This was a small rural church still made up primarily of just three or four key extended families, some of which were founding families of this congregation. Like many rural churches, they were facing the challenge of encroachment from an explosion of suburban development. Their once tight-knit community was now becoming the far-end bedroom community for professionals with a daily 30-mile commute into the city. Add into that mix a young, inexperienced, but enthusiastic pastor still running on the idealism of an affirmative seminary experience, and you've got a potential train wreck. I pressed the cancel button on the voice messages, and I immediately called my former student back. He soon confirmed what I suspected. At the end of a Wednesday evening Bible study, the deacons presented him with a list of grievances, and they asked for Alan's resignation. Alan was taken completely by surprise. There had been little warning that anything like this would happen during what he thought was a routine church Bible study. 
Alan had been pastor at this congregation less than two years. So we talked for about 20 minutes, or rather, he talked and I commiserated. After I hung up the phone, I remembered his installation service at that church. It was an occasion that was marked by joy and hope and great expectations. The upbeat service was followed by a church dinner. And visiting with the friendly and down-to-earth folks of Allen's new congregation, I couldn't help but feel envious at the palpable sense of family and community as we talked and we enjoyed that covered dish meal on the church's grounds. Truth is, a Hollywood director wanting to capture the American icon of the church couldn't have scripted a better afternoon. So what went wrong? Alan's enthusiastic, future-oriented vision for change caused anxiety surrounding change and was felt as a threat and perceived as a lack of appreciation for the church's traditions. His reaching out to newcomers while in direct response to what the church said it wanted, it caused the fear of loss of identity and intimacy in the congregation. His confidence and his calling as pastor was often perceived as a lack of appreciation for the matriarchs and the patriarchs in the church. Or to put it bluntly, Allen was fired from his church for doing what the church called him to do. So for Allen, ministry would have been easier if it weren't for the people. But although most ministers never run into people who force them to resign, every minister has run into someone who has caused them to utter those words that ministry would be easier without the people and to question their God-given calling. These are the kinds of people that will go out of their way to be at a church on Monday morning just to chew the pastor out about something that was said during Sunday morning's message the day before. These are the kinds of people who will actually drive through the church parking lot at 4.30 every afternoon just to make sure that the pastor didn't go home early. These are the kinds of people who will call up the chair of every single committee in the entire church to lodge a formal complaint about a minister's visits being too long or too short, too often or too infrequent, all at the same time. And when these people run out of complaints about their pastor, these are the kinds of people that threaten to leave the church because they just don't approve of the new toilet paper in the restrooms. And for those of you who think that I'm exaggerating, just to make a point here, I'm not. I have either experienced every one of these things for myself or I've heard about them from one of my friends and colleagues in ministry. So whether you realize it or not, there are some people who will do whatever they can to make a minister question their calling. And I know that because it's happened to me. For me, it happened about 18 months into my ministerial career. And it's left a scar that I will always carry with me. And it came out of nowhere. I was sitting in my office at church when one of our members called to ask if I had seen the weekly newspaper in our small town. Now, I'd been in my office all day, so I told him that I hadn't. Well, within a few minutes, this member was at the church with that newspaper in hand, opened up to the op-ed section. He handed it to me, and as I quickly scanned the editorial he had highlighted for me, my jaw nearly hit the floor. For the better part of a thousand words, my church was derided, my ministry was disparaged, and my integrity was called into question. The only thing that made it worse 
was that when I reached the end of what was printed in the paper, it was pretty clear that the editor had cut the tirade off, probably to protect the newspaper from any possible litigation, leaving me to wonder what else this person had written. But the words that were printed were enough to leave me no doubt who had pinned them. And for the rest of that afternoon, I tried to figure out what I had done to make this person so angry with me. But as I played back every encounter in my mind, I knew that I had done nothing wrong. Instead, I had practically bent over backwards to be a good minister to her and to her family. I was the one who had visited with her father day after day as his life neared an end. I was the one who had sat in their living room and by his bedside being the presence of Christ. I was the one who had officiated what she herself had called a beautiful service after her father had passed away. And I was the one who had called every week or two after his passing just to check up on her and see how she was doing. Or to put it more bluntly, all I had done was everything she had asked me to do, and she still wrote one of the most hateful and vile editorials that I have ever seen printed, and it just so happened to be about me. But in spite of my own personal experiences, I have to confess that even though this person made me question my God-given calling, she didn't make me want to quit doing ministry. So I can honestly tell you that I don't agree that ministry would be easier if it weren't for the people. The truth is, I have met plenty of waiters and waitresses, sales associates, and customer service representatives who have been treated far worse and far more often than just about any minister that I know. But I also have to confess that in my 13 years of ministerial experience, I have seriously thought about quitting one time, and it was all because of a person. Now, I'm sure that your mind is probably running wild trying to figure out what horrible thing some parishioner did to me to make me seriously consider quitting ministry, especially since a hateful editorial printed for all of the world to see wasn't enough to send me packing. Well, the answer to that question, it'll probably surprise you. All this person did was become my friend. Our friendship was forged in Sunday school classes and at deacons meetings. It grew around dinner tables and during weekly Bible studies. It was solidified while we hung drywall during a mission project in one of the poorest counties in our country. But then, it ended. Now, it didn't end because of church politics, and it didn't end because one of us just wanted to move on to another church. It didn't end because of hurt feelings or unrealistic expectations. It ended in death, in the all-too-real loss of a friend. I can still feel the pain of that loss all these years later. I can still remember the thoughts that ran through my mind as I sat with his family discussing his funeral service, and as I poured my heart and soul into writing a sermon to deal with his loss. And it was during that time that a sad realization struck me, and, that, and that's that part of being a minister is burying your friends. And the more that I thought about that, the more I realized I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to spend the next 30 years of my life presiding over the funerals of my friends. So I seriously thought about quitting. I thought about walking away from ministry. I thought about doing something else with my life. 
But then I realized that I have no other marketable skill, so I figure I was just stuck being a minister. I'm just kidding about that last part. What I actually realized is I reflected on the loss of that friend was how blessed I am to be able to form these friendships in the first place. As a minister, I get invited into people's lives in a way that few others do. So I began to understand that a loss doesn't hurt unless the person meant something to you. And ministry is worth the loss but it, because it allows for so much love. The problem is that love also makes us vulnerable. And there are times when we pay the price of pain for loving other people. So there are times when we all have to bury our family and our friends. And there are times when we all have to say goodbye because someone has had to leave to start a new job or to change schools or to go take care of an aging loved one. And there are times when the people that we love will talk about us behind our backs and there are times when they will say even worse things to our face. And when these times come, it's almost enough to make us wish that we had never loved. But there are other times that come that make all of the pain worth it. There will be times when someone will just pick up the phone and make a call just to check up on us when they hear that we've been feeling a little bit under the weather. And there will be times when someone will send you a thank you card just for being you. And to make it even better, they'll occasionally slip a gift card inside of that note. And there will be times when your refrigerator will be overflowing with homemade casseroles and garden-fresh vegetables just because somebody was thinking about you. And yes, when those times come, all of the pain is worth it because of the love that you felt. You know... When I think about all of this, I can't help but think about the most famous passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. And even if you've never read this book of wisdom from the Old Testament before, I bet you know exactly what passage I'm talking about. Because the band The Birds turned it into a classic folk rock ballad decades ago. This passage says, There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to harvest, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to rebuild, a time to cry, and a time to laugh, a time to grieve, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to turn away, a time to search, and a time to loose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak up. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now when we read this passage, it seems to help us deal with the pain and the hurt that we experience in our lives. Because we've all been there. We've all wondered why bad things happen, why our loved ones have died, why our relationships have come to an end. And even though this passage doesn't explain why any of these things happens, it does comfort us by telling us that the bad that we've experienced won't last forever. There will be good times too. There will be seasons when children will be born. And there will be seasons when new relationships begin. And there will be seasons when our tears are replaced by laughter. But the problem is that this passage also tells us that these good seasons will end. 
Good times will give way to bad, just like the summer always gives way to fall. But this passage from Ecclesiastes, it doesn't end on that melancholy note. The writer goes on to say, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And this, of course, begs us the question, what burden has the author seen God place upon mankind? In his book, The Bible That Jesus Read, Philip Yancey calls this burden the burden of the gods. And what Yancey means is that this burden is our attempt to be like God, understanding good and evil, and then working to fix the perceived evils in our world. But as Philip Yancey goes on to point out, most of our problems have come about, ironically, because of our desire to progress, to improve, to make life better. At the end of the 19th century, it looked as if science and technology would cure disease, banish pain, and allow us all to live like kings. But the progress that brought us dishwashers and salt vaccines also brought us nuclear weapons, global warming, and carcinogens without number. So in the end, the author of Ecclesiastes concludes, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Ultimately, he seems to trust that God knows what's best. And there's no need to change the mind of God. In the end, we're just supposed to fear and respect God and not to try to solve all of the problems of the world and the seasons on God's behalf. But what does that mean for us? How does that help us deal with the hurt that we all sometimes feel? Well, the truth is it doesn't. This passage just reminds us that hurt and loss go hand in hand with love. And there are times when we can't do anything about it. It's actually the book of Romans that tells us how to deal with the hurt that we all feel. In Romans 12, 15, we're told, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. In other words, it's telling us to be there for one another. It's telling us to share the fullness of life together. It's telling us to embrace the moments of great joy and the moments of great sorrow. If we get bogged down in the shadows of this life, if we let the hurt overcome us, we'll all feel like giving up. And if we just plaster a smile on our faces and pretend that nothing bad ever happens, then we're just being disingenuous to a world filled with pain. But if we embrace both the joy and the sorrow, the love and the pain, then we embrace the fullness of life that God has given us. And we find that our life has always been filled with more goodness and abundance than with pain. So you know what? The words of that old R.E.M. song are true. Everybody hurts sometimes. And that includes pastors. But you know what else? Everyone also experiences moments of joy. So we all need to realize that it's not up to us to solve all the pain in this world because we already believe in a God who is doing that. What we need to do is share the time that we've been given and to be there in moments of joy and in sorrow and mourning and rejoicing. It's our call to be there for each other 
and to trust that God will heal whatever pain we experience. It's one of the biggest things that I've learned over the years. Sometimes things happen inside of life and inside of ministry that I have no control over. We've experienced so many of those things at Melbourne Heights. We've experienced it as we've lived through this worldwide pandemic that has caused us to worship online only over the last several months. That's beyond our control. And what we can do, well, we can try to freak out about it and try to take matters into our own hands to place the burden of God upon us. Or we can accept that some things are beyond our control. That this is a season that will come and go. That our pain won't last forever. And that we will experience happiness and joy again. Ultimately, what we have to do is trust in God. Trust in the God that controls the times and the seasons. And a God who is always working to do good. So let's trust in God. No matter what season we find ourselves in, let's trust in God and allow him to take it from there. While we spend time caring for each other and loving each other, and just being there for each other. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time that we've been able to come together today to worship you. And God, you know that all of us experience pain and hurt. And God, the truth is that there are plenty of us that are experiencing that pain and that hurt right now. There are plenty of people who have been largely isolated for months on end. Plenty of people who have been dealing with medical issues in the world around us. Plenty of people that have experienced death and loss and grief. And God, sometimes when we experience all of this pain, we feel like giving up. We can't see the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. But God, remind us that the bad seasons will come to an end. That there will be a time for joy and happiness and laughter in our lives again. And God, allow us to trust in you, no matter what season it is that we find ourselves in. Trusting that you are always working to do good in our world and in our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has reminded you that our faith isn't just about the peaks. Our faith also happens in the valleys. So we, as part of a church, we are called to share all of life together. The ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows. That's what it means for us to be people of faith. Now, next week we're going to be wrapping up this series of sermons, and I've got one more that I want to preach. It's about what it's been like to be a pastor during this pandemic. So I hope that you'll come back and join us next Sunday afternoon at 12 o'clock when that episode drops. As always, you can subscribe to our podcast, and the next episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And I also want to invite you to come and worship with us any Sunday morning. You can join us live on our church's website. That's mhbclouisville.com slash live. Love to have you worship with us. So until next time, I hope that you guys have a great week this week, and we will see you back here next Sunday for another sermon podcast.